Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. Um, This is a beautiful, beautiful morning. And we're starting off this morning. We had three segments this morning. So we are having Mr. David Hinkapi. He's from the Small Business Administration. Good morning, sir. Good morning. How are you doing this morning? Pretty good. How are you? Good, 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 good. Can you give everybody, starting off with your name and your position with the Small Business Administration? Sure. Uh, my name is David Hincopy. I am an economic development specialist in the Washington Metropolitan Area District Office of the Small Business Administration. The, it's a federal agency. And... Uh, that is one district of 68 districts throughout the country. So our district covers the District of Columbia, Fairfax, Loudoun, Arlington counties in Northern Virginia, and uh, Montgomery and Prince George's counties in uh, Maryland. And uh, we have lender relations specialists in the district office, economic development specialists like me, and also business opportunity specialists. And they work with small businesses in the federal contracting program that the Small Business Administration has. And David, you've been on a couple of times, and I'm glad you're on again. We're going to talk this morning about the issues with the coronavirus. And mm-hmm. so do you have any updates on the economic development uh, on the PPP and the economic injury disaster loan? Well, yes. On the PPP, uh, there was a second round of funding that was approved, and uh, that happened after the last time that we talked. And so it's, you know, people are can apply for the PPP now if they're eligible for it uh, through a bank or a non-bank lender. The Economic Injury Disaster Loan, which from here on I'll just refer to as a disaster loan, that is closed to uh, everything but farm businesses, agricultural businesses, or agricultural enterprises is what the terminology we use in, in the regulations. Uh, because in the second round of the bill that gave us the second round of funding for the PPP also changed the eligibility for the disaster loan. Farms um, previously were not eligible, and now they are. So the um, idle application, economic injury disaster loan. The idle application is now open for farm businesses, so they can get some access to that. There have been, uh, since our last conversation, additions to the interim final rule. The interim final rule are the official rules from the SBA that uh, govern the implementation of the PPP that was passed in the CARES Act. Right. So uh, we have the original one that came out on uh, April 3rd, 
And since then, we've had another. Well, just this morning, actually, I got a I got another uh, update uh, for additions to the interim final rule, clarifying how a person can get the loan forgiveness, how they can use the money for the loan. You know, there have been a lot of questions, and so um, all of these subsequent clarifications should make it easier for people to use them. Okay, so if you missed out on the disaster loan the first go around, you mm-hmm. you're out of it now because it's only for agriculture because they were out the first go around. Yes, yes. Right. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I don't know if we're going to reopen it for all businesses. All of this, of course, just depends on the resources that we have, and the resources we have are the resources that Congress gives us. So um, it's open to farms now. I don't know if it's going to be open again for regular businesses. But if you applied for the IDLE, or the disaster loan, and uh, you have an application number, then you're in this queue, <clears throat> probably – you have heard nothing but silence since you applied, uh, and that is just because the queue is extremely long. Um, so the best analogy uh, that I can give you, the one that I've come up with, is if you're at a large supermarket or a Costco and you're in a big, long line. And at the front of the line, there's a Costco employee who's directing you to the different cash registers, and there's 100 cash registers. Well, when you get to the head of the line and you get that to employee, that's the credit. That's when you hear the first thing from us. That's the credit check for the, the disaster loan. And then if you pass the credit check, then you will go to the cash register. They'll direct you to one. All right, go over to number 57. It's open. That's a loan officer. All right. Before you get to that first person, it's going to take about three weeks because there's millions, and I'm not exaggerating, literally millions of applications already that we have to process. There's a backlog. And then after you get that, uh, that credit check, after that person sends you the cash register, that's the loan officer, uh, that's going to take another two weeks because again, there are millions of people that, uh, we're dealing with, with the backlog. We have hired more people in our distribute, um, our processing center. Um, but, we can't hire them fast enough. You know, if we hire someone on Monday, it's not like they can get on the job on Tuesday. They got to get some training um, and we got to get them so they can do a decent job. We're hiring people with experience processing loans. Um, And so if anyone is interested in at least three months of work with the SBA and you have experience in this, you were ever a loan processor or a loan officer at a bank or a lending institution of any kind, Get on the SBA website, and we are looking for people to help us get through this backlog of roughly six million applications. So, is this you're just just to talked about the disaster loan, or is this the PPP mm-hmm. also? That's for the disaster loan because that's a direct loan from the SBA, and we're the ones processing the applications and doing the credit decision, doing the underwriting, all that stuff. The PPP, those well, are wait a minute, before you indirect. before you move on. I thought that your credit was not an issue with the disaster loan. When we no, it is an issue. It's just that the credit requirement is much lower than would normally be for a working capital loan, right? If you're if you're looking for a working capital loan, norm, under normal circumstances, uh, there would be a, a credit requirement, a minimum credit score um, that would be you know you would you would pass or not pass, and it, it would be much higher than the one we have now. Do you the know one what we have now scores is are? pretty low. Say again? Do you 
Do you know what that credit score was before and what it is now that you have to meet? Well, what it is now is what it's always been. It's just that for our disaster loan, the credit score is pretty low. Uh, We don't go into the details of what exactly it is because there are lots of other reasons. There are lots of other things. The first thing we look at, yes, is that. But then there's then then we're going to look at the cash flow of the business. The disaster loan, um, and I don't know if we got into this much detail the last time we talked. But the disaster loan is really a it's not an asset based loan. It's not a, a collateral based loan. It's a cash flow based loan. So we're going to look at the credit score, and then we're going to look at the cash flow of the business to see if the business could, under normal circumstances, pay back the loan. So if the business just hasn't been very profitable, and even under normal circumstances, say last year, you know, November, October, or even summer, if, if from the financial information you give us, it doesn't look like you were able to really pay back this loan anyway, you won't be able to get the loan. But if it's a business that is got positive cash flow and it's making some money, and you pass this very low credit score minimum, then you should be all right. I can't make any promises. I can't get, guarantee anything. That's just how it is. Okay. Okay. So that is the disaster loan. And you, yeah. if you're not agriculture, you'd already have to have a number. You'd already have to apply. And yes. what you told me the last time, if I got the right one, is that if you're a co-op and it talks about having some people to sign it, just anybody with authority sign it. could be the board of directors. It could be the president of the co-op, but somebody to sign it. Yes. Yes. In fact, uh, earlier this week, I talked to somebody from a, a construction cooperative, a small uh, five person, uh, five member construction cooperative in uh, the, in the Northwest. I think they were in, I forget if they were, they were in Washington. Yeah. They were the state of Washington by, yeah, in the state of Washington, yeah. The Northwest Cooperative Development Center put them in touch with me, and they had some questions about their application. And, yeah, they on their application, they put in three people. I think the three people who had been there the longest, you know, as the owners, um, because there's no special <clears throat> application or, or anything like that for co-ops. It's the same application, although the first question, in in the very beginning, you you – you check what kind of business you are, you can say that you're a cooperative. But uh, the rest of the application where you put in who the owners are and everything, it's not specialized for co-ops. So you just put in whatever owners you can you can put in, you choose to put in there. So a farming in, in agriculture, so could somebody like, um, and I'm not sure they would put it in, but a marketing or producer cooperative like uh, Cabot Creamery is, uh, I think, 900 farmers are in that co-op. If they needed this money, then they would be able to do it because they're associated with agriculture? Oh, no. They were eligible before. Because, well, okay, so it was a little complicated before. So before the latest the, the bill that I'm going to call, um, let's call it PPP2, right, or the second round. Before the second round, there had been legislation in the original PPP that made all cooperatives eligible and certain kinds of, of agricultural ones were, were eligible. And so now, yes, um, everybody, you know, whether farm or not, you know, with, with the farm, whether it's a cooperative or not a cooperative, it's eligible. Now they opened it up, but before there was some overlap in that 
the legislation, the first round of PPP, made all kinds of cooperatives eligible. So they were able to do it, you know, in the first round anyway. Okay, and so I was told that the NCBA, National Cooperative Business Association, and the National Cooperative Bank were advocated for co-ops, all co-ops being in, involved in that. And I'm sure yes. there were other advocates. Yeah, they did a really good job with that and in the first round, you know, getting all, you know, extending it to all cooperatives. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the PPP. We, we spent a lot of time with, with the disaster loan, and mm-hmm. for most co-ops now, they would not even apply. If they hadn't applied before, like that construction co-op in, in, in Washington State, if they had not applied before, they not they cannot even apply now. And that's a direct loan from Small Business Administration, and you are processing yes. that. What, yes. Now, the... PPP is a loan from your your bank, the, the bank that you would be working with, the bank that you normally work with, you would go to them. And now it could be a credit union that you'd go to, it could be a community bank, it could be a large bank, but the, it would be processed through that bank. All right now we we're going to have to take our yeah. next break here. Uh, okay. I'd like to come back and talk about the... PPP, the first one, the second one, and if there's going to be a third one, and so people can queue up for that. And I assume there's millions, millions that have have applied for that already. But we're going to take our first break, David, and we'll be right back. News Talk Station. Information is power. Information is power. And that's why WOL makes it for a great, great partner. Because we are providing information. And right now we're, we're we provide information about the benefits of co-ops and how co-ops can help communities and help families, help individuals. And we're talking to David Hinkapee. Uh, who has been on the show before. He's from the Small Business Administration, and we're talking about the disaster loan and PPP. So the first segment, we talked about the disaster loan. And after David is finished at 11 o'clock, we're having two people come on to talk more about uh, co-ops and get your answers to your questions. If you have any questions, you can call 1-800-450-7888. Seven six. That's one eight hundred four five zero seven eight seven six. To answer any questions, you could call David. We'll try to get as many of your questions answered. And then after David, we're going to have somebody from the Federation of Worker Co-ops, and that's Esteban Kelly. And from the National Cooperative Bank, we're going to have John Hoslow on, and that's going to be from eleven to twelve. We'll be on for another hour. So, David, we're back to PPP, uh, number one, number two, and maybe number three. Tell us about that. So, uh, well, I'll give you a recap. The PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, it is uh, a loan, uh, SBA-guaranteed loan program um, to lend money to small businesses who have suffered some big loss of revenue because of the pandemic or maybe a total loss of revenue if they're shut down completely. Obviously, if they have no revenue, they can't pay their employees. So they get this guaranteed loan from the, from a bank, guaranteed by the SBA, and they use that money to pay 
their employees and keep their the idea is to keep the employees connected to the employer in in a way so that when everything reopens uh, whatever that comes to mean in the future they don't have the employers don't have to spend time and money finding new people you know replacing people who are gone and didn't come back and uh, training them so you you just essentially put everybody on ice right you, you you pay them even if they have to stay home using the funds from the PPP and that way they don't have to go on unemployment benefits and we just freeze everything in place until everything can can open up again so that roughly is the PPP there are and then the most important part about it is that it is a forgivable loan so if you use it to pay your employees and there's a few conditions then the loan will be completely forgiven. You don't have to pay it back. All right. So the conditions are that you have to use at least 75% of the loan money for payroll and payroll costs. And payroll costs are things that are associated with payroll, like uh, any kind of um, vacation leave, uh, medical leave, family leave, retirement benefits, state and local payroll taxes, but not federal payroll taxes, uh, and a group employee or employee group health insurance, including the premiums, that those are payroll costs. So use 75% of the loan for those things, and the whole loan is forgiven. That means you can use up to 25% of the loan for other costs that you might have, like rent, lease, payments, utilities, uh, mortgage interest, things like that. And so then that's the PPP. We got a second round of funding. People are, or institutions, lenders are taking applications for them right now. And uh, almost everybody is eligible for it. Um, there's a few, a uh, couple of kinds of specifically designated nonprofits, veterans organizations and 501c3s and certain kinds of um, Native American organizations, tribal organizations that are eligible. And then small businesses, sole proprietors, self-employed persons, they are eligible for it as well. Churches are also eligible, right? Yes, that was an inclusion. Yeah, I forgot that one. That was an, uh, an inclusion uh, I think they referred to them as faith-based organizations, and they're now eligible for these things, too. Yeah, I was going to say church, mosque, synagogue, uh, faith-based yeah. organization. Yeah. Okay. So if you, you were, all of these people are eligible, and you had told me the last time that sort of like you could get $1,000 for 10 employees up to $10,000 immediately? Like right that now? was for the disaster loan. So the disaster loan had this component oh. that didn't exist until the first CARES Act, right? The first round of PPP. It, even though it came in on the bill that created the PPP, it's from the disaster loan, and it was up to $10,000. It was $1,000 per employee that you could get irrespective of the loan. You could get that. You didn't have to pay it back. So we called it an advance, but then, it, you know, it's effectively a grant. And you don't have to pay it back, whether or not you get the disaster loan, because we would send that money to people. It took about three weeks to get to them, and we continued processing their loan application. So whatever happened next, that advance grant that they got, they got to keep. They didn't have to pay it back. didn't matter if we declined the loan. If, um, it didn't matter if we offered the loan and they rejected the loan. They decided, oh, I don't want the money after all. It didn't matter, or they took the loan. That money didn't have to be paid back from the advance grant. Okay, so that was a part of the protection program, and that is that still loan. there for the agriculture people? Yes, it's it's still there for the agriculture people as well, yeah. 
and it's part of the okay. disaster loan program. Yeah. So if somebody wants to PPP, what's included in that loan is is seventy five percent for employee costs, payroll and payroll costs. Yes. Payroll and payroll costs twenty five percent for others. And then you have to go to a bank. And then what are the banks looking for? Are they looking for credit scores and a whole bunch of paperwork? Uh, no. Well, so that one, it, this hasn't been much talked about. It is a guaranteed loan by the SBA. The SBA guarantees the loan so that if the borrower defaults, then the SBA will pay the bank and the bank doesn't suffer a loss. It is a 100% guaranteed loan, which we've never done before. The SBA hasn't done in its you know, uh, nearly 70-year history. We've not done but it's a 100% guaranteed loan. In, in SBA guaranteed loans, the lender makes the credit decision. The SBA doesn't decide to lend or not lend the money. The lender does, whether it's a bank or a non-bank lender. Um, they make the credit decision. They can decide not to do it. You can apply for a PPP with a lender and they can say, well, no, we, we're not going to do the loan. Then you might have to go to another lender. Now, in in actual fact... I've heard of very few people having their PPP loan. In fact, I've only heard of one, right? But that's just me, right? This is anecdotal. Mm -hmm. I've only heard of one person whose loan application was rejected by the bank. The bank said, no, we're not going to do it. I don't know the details of it. I heard of it secondhand from one of my colleagues. I don't know the details of it. Everything else I've heard is if you can get your application in with a lender, and I'll just use the generic term lender for banks and non-bank lenders. If you can get your application in with a lender, then... They're going to process it, and you'll be in the queue, and eventually it'll get to the SBA. The SBA will review it, making make sure everything is in, in order, give the lender a loan number, and then that means the loan is going to be funded in, in a few days. We have up to 10 days to, to fund the loan. The bank has up to 10 days to fund the loan for, for the person according to the rules. So that one is... As best as I can tell, they're not really doing any credit checks because everybody who gets an application in and gets it sent to the SBA is getting their loan funded. And I think that's effectively that's because it's a 100 percent guarantee. If the banks have a 100 percent guarantee or the lenders have a 100 percent guarantee, well, then, you know, even if the person defaults on it, then the SBA is going to pay for the loan. And also, remember, it's a forgivable loan. As long as they meet the conditions for the forgiveness of the loan, they're not going to have to pay it back. So there isn't really going to be a problem of, you know, borrowers defaulting on this loan. It's going to be forgiven. And it's not hard to meet the requirements for forgiveness. They're pretty straightforward. And and there have been some wrinkles, but we've had additions to the to the final rule that smooth out those wrinkles. And I suppose if people have questions, they're, they're, they're going to come up. And if they don't, I'll bring them up. Okay, so David, you you said an if, and you said it if a couple times. If you can get your application in, is there any reasons that stop you, like the number of people in the queue, the processing, whether the the banks can even handle the numbers of loans? Well, so anybody who was paying attention to the news when the first PVP rolled out, you realized the banks were slammed with these applications, right? There was a tsunami of applications, and they weren't ready for it, and it was very difficult. Banks also gave priority to their bigger customers, right? People who had more money or institutions, you know, businesses that had more money on deposit with them. But, you know, that's what banks do. Um, that's no surprise to anyone. So there were a lot of people who were having trouble first getting an application, right? They would go to their bank and uh, the bank 
had no way to take applications. The bank would tell them, uh, or stand by, we're going to get a website ready, and then they would take a week to get the website ready. And So these were the problems. So how is it uh, now? Because we have another minute left for your time. Oh, Thank it's, you. Now it's it's become a little bit more. It's easier now because everybody now has experience with with doing this, and they've been doing it now for a month, and so it's getting better. And as long as you can find a lender to take your application, then you should be okay until the money runs out again, which eventually it will. If you are a sole proprietor or a self-employed person, you should go to an online lender uh, because such people don't usually have business accounts and banks are only doing this for business account holders. So if you don't have a business account at a bank, you're going to have to go to another kind of lender. And the ones who have the sole proprietors I know, I've talked to who've had success putting in an application, it has been with online lenders. David, thank you very much. That's our time is up. And I really want to thank you, David, for coming on and giving us this information. Okay. Happy we'll be right back anytime. with John Hostclaw from the National Cooperative Bank and Esteban Kelly with the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We have Mr. John Hosclaw from the National Cooperative Bank and Esteban Kelly, and we'll be on for the next hour. To answer any of your questions, Esteban is with the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives, uh, so we'll be here to answer any of your questions you can call in at 1-800-450-7876. And, John, let's start off with you. If you could tell us, what is the bank doing? What's National Cooperative Bank doing to help the, the co-ops in the U.S. with this coronavirus? Uh, first and foremost, uh, thank you, uh, Vernon, for having me on today. Um, I appreciate uh, every time I get an invite to everything co-op and uh, always look forward to our conversations. Well, the National Cooperative Bank, like most financial institutions across the country, try to do our best in regards to our customers. We obviously, like most folks, um, try to work with our mortgage customers on a case-by-case basis around assistance from cooperative housing and HOA and, and other customers. We tried to help them through some of these hardships on a case-by-case basis, um, as well as our commercial customers. And, um, you know, like most branches, we uh, closed our branch uh, in Ohio to uh, foot traffic and then tried to push everyone through our online banking practices. But I think the more important thing was um, uh, with the uh, inclusion last year of cooperatives being able to use the SBA 7A program. And I know you just had a representative on prior to um, Esteban and myself from the SBA. Uh, we were participants um, in the, um, the the Paycheck Protection Program and were able to help many of our customers who are cooperatives, obviously, uh, in regards to that Paycheck pr- Protection, probably to the tune of almost nearly 200 um, of those um, loans approved uh, PPP uh, loans that we were able to uh, provide to, to many cooperative uh, um, and members of the bank. And so, you know, like most financial institutions, many of larger sizes and much smaller, we tried to do our best to 
uh, help our customers, and many of whom were uh, folks that we work with were not even bank customers, but we obviously felt like the need was so great, and if we had a level of expertise uh, to help um, uh, these small businesses, we wanted to be able to do so throughout this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So you're telling me that National Co-op Bank processed some of these PPP loans, so people co-op particularly can still go to the bank to process these PPP loans? Well, uh, regretfully, uh, Vernon, at this time, um, well, we are no longer taking PPP applications, as you know, in the first uh, round of the of cares with 350 billion plus uh, that money uh, ran out and then there was another package and so at this point um, as we get to the end of that money running out we're at a place now where we are unable to take additional PPP applications but again from the beginning of the program having uh, approved up to nearly 200 uh, applications um, we definitely put the work in I can only imagine what some of the larger financial institutions. You know, and one thing I might also add is that with the second bill, it allowed community development financial institutions or, or otherwise called CDFIs, as well as minority deposit institutions to participate in the program as well. And, and they were given a $60 billion set aside with hopes of that reaching down further in some of the low and moderate income communities uh, in black and brown communities across the country. So I think, um, I don't know if the SBA representative mentioned that, but on this second second round, there was a more intentional effort in regards to reaching down to some communities that many felt were, were not being served. So were you able to give loans to this uh, CDFIs and these minority deposit institutions, or these organizations could go give loans, PPP loans, to, to other groups? Did, well, these, these organizations, they were able to become PPP lenders themselves. They were able to become um, lenders themselves uh, in the in the first initial round, um, they were not able to. But again, with this second package or, or the last package, they were able to expand um, their uh, abilities. And many many of them being community development banks, community development credit unions, minority deposit institutions, and in some cases, um, CDFIs um, that were loan funds, which was something that would not have happened uh, in the past. But the SBA and the U.S. Congress were able to allow them the opportunity to be lenders. So who are some of those smaller lenders? I, I, I know you said uh, credit unions, but mm -hmm. who, what are some of these smaller groups that these co-ops could go to for this PPPs? Well, the co-ops could go to, like, for example, and, I, and I'm unsure if they were able to participate in the program, but there are several CDFIs across the country, uh, like Shared Capital uh, in Minneapolis. I know you've had there. Um, outstanding um, leader on Christina Jennings. Um, there's a, well, she'll be on next week. Okay, we we'll tell her. Week. Please tell her I said okay. hello. Um, um, and then um, we had Leaf in the in the in the Cooperative Fund of New England. We're just to name a few. Unsure at this point if they be, be, became uh, uh, PPP lenders, but again, with the change in the rule, um, they were able to become lenders if they chose to do so. Again, not all CDFIs across the country chose to do it, but you know, you're talking about groups like that. You're talking about community development credit unions um, across the country. And a, a lot of folks may not know the difference, but, you know, there are credit unions that are, uh, they all have a designation, but there are some that are in certain areas of the country that characteri are characterized as low-income credit unions or community development credit unions if they are certified as CDFIs by the, by the um, CDFI fund. And so, 
you had a host of of, of of them participating in the program. I don't have the numbers right in front of me. They have an outstanding trade association called Inclusive, who represents them on the trade standpoint, as well as community development banks, many of whom are um, minority deposit institutions, like in the area where I live in. In North Carolina, there's Mechanics and Farmers, which is one of the what is it, which is the one of the oldest black-owned uh, banks in the country. They were able to provide these loans, and so you're talking about groups like that who were able to help small businesses throughout their communities all across the country. Uh, and, and again, it's not it wasn't just the big banks or the top ten banks in the country that were doing this. And while on a smaller scale, I I, I think it's very important that their story also be told as it relates to the PPP program and, the, and, and their help uh, in providing um, these small businesses with paycheck protection. Thank you, John. It's always a pleasure to hear from you and and see what the bank is doing. National Co-op Bank has sponsored this program for the six and a half years we've been on, and you guys make great, great, great partners, not only financial support, but just support in helping us being directed in what kinds of things we talk about and being out front, working with co-ops uh, throughout the U.S. and in some cases throughout the world. And so now I want to turn attention to Esteban Kelly. Uh, good morning, Esteban. Good morning. How you doing? I'm great, 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 great. So talk to us about the Federation of Worker Co-ops. What are you all doing to, to help worker co-ops uh, in the U.S. now to fight through this pandemic? Well, we're doing a lot, but I like to boil it down to, to three. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the first piece is we've been working on advocacy, of course, to make sure that um, that small businesses, that worker-owned businesses, that cooperatives had access to some of these programs that we knew were going to be part of the relief efforts going through Congress. Um, and we worked very closely with um, NCBA, with NCB, with a lot of our um, partners in national cooperative organizing on the Hill. And we continue to do that, um, in, including to lean on the different agencies like the Small Business Administration itself to make sure that cooperatives had access to their programs, which is something that we've been working on for a long time. But, you know, this presented a, a very new opportunity. Secondly, we've provided support, resources and technical assistance. We set up a website, actually, that's just at usworker.coop slash COVID-19. And it lists, it pulls together all the different mutual aid campaigns that our members were doing locally in their communities, uh, a lot of the webinars that we've recorded on helping people navigate the process of applying for loans or assessing which programs they should be applying for, a link to Maps to Find Lenders. We certainly sent some of our members to NCB um, and some of the other CDFIs that John just mentioned. We ourselves actually um, processed our PPP loan through NCB, so thank you guys so much for that. Wait, wait, wait. wait. uh, (laughs) I'm sorry. So the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops put in for a PPP loan, and you put that oh, in for the National Cooperative Bank. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay. I bet you didn't know that. <laughs> no. I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> I knew John, that. You know. <laughs> so you process it. Did they make the loan to you already? Yeah. Uh, and, this is a cooperation among cooperatives. I think we uh, we overnighted the, the wet signature documents Last night. So they're arriving probably in the next 45 minutes to their, to their legal team. But we've been working with them for the last couple of weeks on that, as have uh, a few of our members. I know I'm, I'm actually part of uh, a worker co-op that also pursued PPP and EIDL loans um, through NCB. And we were successful in that, too. My co-op, AORTA. What is AORTA? 
kind well, of you know, we did. A, I came on the show a few years ago to talk about AORTA. It stands for Anti-Oppression Resource and Training Alliance. And we're um, a worker co-op of consultants that are sprinkled around the country offering facilitation training and political education to help cooperatives and, and mission-driven organizations and businesses. They kind of expand the work that they're doing around solidarity economy and cooperative economy and social justice. Fantastic. So how many co-ops do you belong to? Oh, come on. <laughs> That's not a fair question. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. The reason I ask is because I was counting the other day. I think I belong to four. And uh-huh. I, people in co-ops, and when you look at you know a credit union and a housing co-op, yep. and then maybe a store, a food co-op, and different co-ops, it's easy to get into four. I'm in the Federation of Worker Co-ops, Southern, no, Federation of Southern Co-ops, and farmers that join that to yeah. help out, support yeah. them. So right. when you look around, it's easy to get involved in, in the number of co-ops and see all of this great work that co-ops do, and most people don't know about. That's why National Co-op Bank helps to sponsor this program so we can know about it. So I only ask the question. My sense is it's probably more than two. But, okay, so the first thing you've done is advocacy <laughs> <Yeah>. work. <laughs> then you got a website, and that website is usworker.coop backslash COVID backslash 19? Dash 19. Okay, so you yeah. go online and get this map of lenders and see what yeah. you're... Yeah, and even if you just go to our homepage, thing? you can click right to it. There's a okay. there's a splash banner where you can find our COVID updates. Yeah, so we have a map for all of the different lenders that are participating in these programs, like John was just talking about, just to make sure that people in any part of the country who are within our membership or who are involved in the cooperative economy have the information they need to find a lender that they can work with. And then we've also started aggregating some of the different resources that exist at the state level. So if you live in Washington state or in Vermont or in Texas, you can go and see, you know, what are the different programs that exist there? Because, of course, it does not always look the same state to state if there are certain unemployment or small business or freelancer policies, laws and programs. So we've compiled all of that stuff there. And I mean, really, the the other piece of technical assistance we're doing is actually calling through all of our members and connecting them to technical assistance providers, making referrals, or often helping them ourselves, including in other languages. I'm sorry, but we've got to take our our break, and we're going to come back and talk about that third piece of calling all of your members and and getting that communication back. We'll come back and talk about that on the other side of the break. We'll be right back, everybody. Information is power. The National Co-op Bank sponsored this program, and they've been a great partner for six and a half years now. So we have John Hostclaw on, who's talked about what the bank has been doing through this coronavirus. And now Esteban Kelly from the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops has been talking about what they've been doing. They've been doing advocacy work to make sure that all of these bills that comes out, that the small the worker co-ops are a part of it. And then they've set up a website where you can go to to get information. Uh, you can just go to usworker.coop and click on the COVID-19 and figure out what they're doing. And the third thing that that Esteban was talking about was that they are calling their members. And Esteban, is that where you're getting on a phone and literally calling each of your members yes. and seeing where they're at? Yes, we have literally called 
each of our members. Some of them have received follow-up calls and multiple calls, guiding them through the process of applying, offering them. Um, the thing about the technical assistance is that it's not just about these loans, right? The kind of TA that we're offering, sometimes directly, sometimes referrals within our networks, we have uh, members who do are part of bookkeeping, cooperative bookkeeping um, businesses who are offering free consultations for new financial projections. You know, what is the scenario that we're now in that was not your initial scenario at the start of 2020? How do you know when you're going to run out of money? How do you know how much money to even apply for? Right. I mean, a lot of the, the folks in our businesses, they might be used to doing landscaping or baking bread and they might not have within their their team the the technical skills for doing um, these kind of sophisticated biz, uh, business adaptations to looking at new financial scenarios or or even just pivoting their operations. A lot of them were, were looking at their options of either um, going on um, unemployment or finding another way to stay to keep themselves employed. So what does it look like to shift their business plan so that they become an essential business, allowing them to not only be helpful to their community in this time, but also to make sure that there's still a revenue stream for their people um, and all the families that, that, that are depending on them. So that, that requires a fair amount of technical assistance. And some of them have shifted from doing something inside of a kitchen to doing delivery, uh, meal delivery, or uh, being couriers specifically, or one of our co-ops, Opportunity Threads down in North Carolina, they do a lot of um, fabric work. They do cut and sew um, textiles. And so they actually shifted their production to make masks that were actually medical grade that could be used by some of the home care cooperatives that are doing uh, nursing here in Philadelphia and in, in New York City. So these are the kind of connections that we're that we've been trying to make, not only from calling our members directly, but making sure that our our network is activated, that there are lines of communication, that that's part of what the webinars have helped us do, um, and some of the other member calls that we've convened for different industries or for some of our regional organizers to come together and share some of those stories. Great. Sounds like you're doing a lot, and that's the reason for having these organizations, that umbrella organization, so that the members can get this kind of support, particularly that technical support, it excites me, and figure out the financial wherewithal, filling out these forms and so forth, which stops a lot of people. Esteban, can you then take us through, I mean, what are some of the, I don't know how specific you want to get in either naming names, um, but what are some of the kinds of questions and the technical support that your clients have looked for. You've talked about the financial wherewithal, and you talked about trying to see if there's other businesses that they could get into. And I'm really wanting to get down to how do co-ops get through this pandemic? What are the kinds of things that we can really do to get through it? And, John, you can come on and see if you can help answer that question, too, after, after Esteban. So there's a few things. I mean, obviously, worker co-ops are a very diverse community, and that, that brings its own set of work and challenges. I mean, a lot of the materials that are circulating in um, within their communities are only in English right now. And so we've done some work to just make sure that even the existing knowledge, the existing frequently asked questions and advice is accessible, at least in Spanish and, and in some cases in other languages, um, or to make sure that there is a either an interpreter or somebody who's multilingual um, who can guide them through advice around, you know, reading through um, their payroll reports and, um, and figuring out and assessing how much they can or should apply for. Um, but I think overwhelmingly, the anxiety has been less around 
how do we get access to this and more questions about whether they should apply. And that's, those are the kinds of questions that we're guiding people through. They're like, well, what if, what if our beer brewing business doesn't reopen before June? And the, the whole premise of this um, program is that we need to rehire and be fully paying our workforce. How, why would we apply for a thing? So help us think through that. And, and, and what does it look like to make sure that this loan is forgiven? Like, what's the due diligence that we need to do? Do we have those sort of controls internally to make sure we're monitoring the right things? And, and if we hadn't been doing that, what are those uh, business adaptations that we need to start paying very close attention to? Because the difference between having something like $75,000 or $100,000 forgiven or not forgiven is not a forgiven, major, yeah. major difference for a lot of these small businesses. Okay. So thinking through and talking through, and I like you said anxiety of should I apply? And what are the, what are the, what happens to make sure I don't get into a hole where I owe back $100,000 and I don't have the ability to pay it back because I can't even open up in June? Okay. Uh, something I sense. think you'd probably find interesting, Vernon, when our, in the first couple of weeks, right after the CARES Act was passed and we were having these calls with members, we noticed, I think we, we should have anticipated this, but we were caught off guard a little bit. We noticed that our members overwhelmingly were rushing to make sure that their business was sound and solvent. They were looking at their own personal finances and savings, figuring out how do we do everything we can to make sure that we're paying our retail rent, um, that we can make payroll. Are we doing our own personal loans to keep the business afloat? And rarely did they think about themselves and their families first, right? That they had been so practiced at um, sharing risk and thinking about this collective project and so invested in it that they forgot to consider the ways in which a lot of government programs are actually set up to make sure that the business is going to be okay. And even if the business isn't going to be okay, you, there are, there's a whole set of laws and supports around bankruptcy or around shuttering a business or winding down operations and having it reopen later and much fewer programs and protections for individuals, either as workers or as uh, oh, citizens, residents, family members. And this was before people were starting to, to, to see the, um, the stimulus checks, right, that were going to be coming around. And so we had to actually do some work to remind people, hey, First things first, the, the reason we're in cooperatives is because of people, because of your communities and your families. The business is there to serve and resource you. Let's make sure that the business, that your cooperative is there to make sure that you're okay, because there's much fewer protections to protect you and to make sure that you're financially and, and even in terms of you know, public health, um, that you're okay. And so this is the moment to actually squeeze the business, <laughs> be smart about it and don't, you know, sacrifice your business for no reason, but be smart about it. But it, it makes a lot more sense to, to make sure that, that your workers are being paid what they should be, even if the business might have to go into the red in a, way, in a scenario you hadn't anticipated or might need to go into debt and take out a loan rather than at draining your personal finances that nobody is going to bail you out from. That's fantastic that that folks are so embedded in this what's best for the group that they even forget about what's best for me. And then you have to remind them, you got to look at both. <laughs> okay. That's quite interesting. John, host Claude, did, did you get into any of this? Were you into the weeds enough that, that you could see how people were responding to this, to either the PPP or the disaster loan? We did. And first and foremost, I want to just applaud 
the Federation for all the technical assistance work that they're doing. I mean, it's, again, one of the um, things that people don't understand about cooperatives is, is, is the amount of technical assistance that is, that is, is provided, number one. And then number two, just really how big of, and, and Esteban had said it earlier, how big of, how big of um, from an advocacy standpoint we are about our uh, community. And I think that a lot of things that have come to life here throughout the uh, process of these emergency spending packages would not have occurred without the education of advocacy of the entire cooperative uh, community educating these elected officials, number one. Then number two, I wanted to uh, correct myself because the bank does pay my bills. Uh, We did 247, we had 247 PPP uh, loans approved. I had some old numbers that had us close to 200, but we I did 247, one of which obviously was the Federation, and I'm so glad that we were able to Federation. All said, and this is a, uh, looking at this from a different uh, standpoint, and I'm, I'm going to obviously defer to my fellow cooperator as it, as it works to worker cooperatives, but on the financial services side, for us, as a, as a member-owned bank or a cooperative bank, you know, as we led up to this PPP release uh, after the, the CARES package, um, we, we ourselves, and I can't speak for all my colleagues, I myself had my own level of anxiety about the implementation of the program. And I I can't tell you how many webinars that I sat on and how many John, minimum rules that I read. And, John, uh, I've got to stop you for a minute because we got to take a break. And we'll I'll be right back with you to talk about the anxiety you had. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. Um, we have Mr. John Hosclaw from the National Cooperative Bank and Mr. Esteban Kelly from the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops. And on the second screen, we have Mo Manklin, who is on hold in case we need to have her come in to answer any questions. She's from the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops, too. And, John, before we took break, you were talking about the anxiety that you had because... Esteban had said that originally what he found out was people in the co-op world are so used to and understand that the co-op is there for the community, for everybody. And so the decisions are made with what's best for the community. And so people that were talking weren't even looking at where they are personally. They were looking at what's best for the community. And part of the technical systems that the Federation did was to get people to also look at themselves to see what's best there and how do you get put in for these loans to make sure that each individual is good and the organization is good. So right. you were talking about, John, before we took the break, about uh, your own anxiety and what the bank was doing. Well, not necessarily about my own anxiety uh, about what the bank was doing, but just really my own personal level of readiness. I, I just felt like you know, I was sitting on all these webinars. I was reading all these SBA uh, uh, interim rules. I wanted to make sure that I knew as, uh, enough about the program because when a potential borrower would call, you know, that I would be able to know enough to be dangerous, obviously, before the program dropped and before the program started taking okay. applications because I felt like there was a lot of you know, for example, I had one um, potential borrower call from uh, me from Mississippi who said that 
you know, hey, I, uh, uh, I'm going to apply with several banks, and hopefully, you know, one will approve me. And what I had to let that person know is that if you apply to more than one bank, then the SBA is going to kick out your loan because you can only do one bank at a time. And so, while that may have been assumed by some people, other folks did not know. Other folks, again, mm-hmm. in their own haste or their own anxiety, trying to, to, to get some paycheck protection, were going to apply with multiple banks. And so I felt like if I was able to head off some of those kind of conversations, that it would keep them from having some pain a little later on. I received tons of calls from people who applied the first time with um, other financial institutions uh, and had heard had, had heard uh, had heard not one thing back from those institutions in regards to the status of their loan and and whatnot. And so, I, so I just think in the ramp up to this, that we wanted to do our best um, uh, internally to have all the the answers to the questions that would be potentially asked by. Uh, our members, many of whom obviously are um, uh, cooperatives, so that we would be able to answer them and, and, and get this whole process through. I know I, I heard a little bit of the previous discussion with the SBA rep. I mean, listen, when you when you ramp something up like this with the amount of money that you're talking about, there are going to be some bumps in the road, and yep. the best thing you can do is know enough about the process to, to where you're able to to kind of bob and weave of all of those bumps in the road. And so I think we tried to do that. And I think it led to what I hope, and, and Esteban can attest to this, was a, was a was a somewhat seamless process for us. And I, I, I we've received, we, we get this a lot, but we've received a lot of great comments from customers who have expressed to us how easy we made a stressful situation feel for them. And that's what I feel is the job of any cooperative and or any financial uh, institution and us as a cooperative bank. Fantastic. So and I, I get that when David from SBA had said there's, he used the example of the store. So if you're in a queue and you've got all of these people in a queue, can you imagine you, you, you go to a store, I started to name one, but any store, and there's a million people in line. <laughs> you got to be six feet apart, okay? So you got this million people, and then five, ten, a hundred of these people have applied for five different banks. So they're kind of like in five different bank queues. It would just make the five. You got five million people. It just would triple, double, quadruple all of these numbers of people. So yeah, that's that's great to know. So if some anybody out there would like to ha- to have a question of these very very intelligent folks who've been doing this work, you can call one eight hundred. Four five zero seven eight seven six, and we have Mr. Tom Bradford who has a comment or question. Tom, I don't know if you remember me. I was on your program and with uh, Iris Mendy Eco Village and Irresistible Community Builders in St. Louis, Missouri. I was on your program on my birthday about three or four years ago. I do remember, um, Tom. Yeah. So thank you so much for putting this program together. My question actually was uh, for David from SBA. So our company suffered a $2.45 million uh, loss of investment that was had been promised for the first quarter. And so we applied for $2 million in relief. We didn't quite fit all of all of the uh, guidelines, uh, so we have supplemented our application with emails to the federal SBA uh, number that they gave us when we applied. 
And so, uh, wait a minute. so, so, wait a minute, Tom. You did get the number. You made the application. Yeah. For the, the disaster loan, so you you did get the number, and that's what he said you had to have, and then you can go ahead and process. If you hadn't had, if you didn't have that number, you'd have to be in agriculture in order to get that. So okay, so you got yeah. the number, and you're you're making it. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. So, Keep so the supplementary information that we put in is that we really feel like our our business is an essential business because we have these innovative uh, technologies where we were just getting ready to start manufacturing our rapid deployment national disaster resistant repair and replacement uh, building system and our rapid indoor growing systems and transportation systems. And so we've presented this case in emails and letters of support to the program that hopefully they'll they'll consider that. So that that was really my question is SBA considering the impact of awards in saving lives and treasure in the immediate and long-term future because Obviously, with we're already in tornado season. It's soon going to be hurricane season, and then wildfires. And and uh, you know, if we happen to have have uh, some other national disasters thrown in, that's going to ramp up the impact of of uh, the situation with the pandemic. And so, we feel like. It would really be nice, or if there are some other resources that maybe some of your folks can guide us to. And we were looking at, before this happened, we were talking to the Carpenters Union in St. Louis, which are already tied in closely with AmeriCorps that have been working for years since the hurricane in uh, Puerto Rico, and they're very excited about working to create these worker-owned co-ops to manufacture this system that can be uh, folded and put in containers and shipped to Puerto Rico or or the places that have just been hit by tornadoes or any place. So that's that's the gist of my question. Okay, does he, John, do you want to? I do, I do, uh, and thank you so much for the for the question. Um, and, 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 and I'm going to do this here, and I'm going to answer it in a way. Um, you know, prior to um, uh, I uh, went over to the business development side of uh, the bank, and I, I don't want anybody to judge me on this call, but I was a, a lobbyist. <laughs> I was in the, the, the <laughs> government relations world, so please don't judge me. But but with that said, you know, the, the answer to the question is, and, and I don't want to get really um, super C-SPAN wonky here, but I also want to answer the question from the standpoint of, and I'm not speaking on behalf of the SBA, but because we're in such unprecedented times and we've had this these series of, of CARES Acts coming out, and, 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 and I always tell people this, I, I don't call this money stimulus. I don't, because I think it's hard to stimulate the, the current economy where we are now. I really feel like there are more emergency spending packages and so as we move forward, there are going to be additional bills and additional um, opportunities for there to be money put into certain areas. You, you hear the rumors on the Hill that there'll be an infrastructure bill. You hear rumors on the Hill that they may give more money to PPP. 
but there also may be money to kind of get ahead of some of the, the FEMA uh, disaster relief and whatnot. And so while all that's going on on one front, you've also got the House and the Senate who are already working to pass their already existing FY21 um, uh, uh, spending bills that go from from the end of September this year, uh, October 1, into next year. And so you've got all of these things swirling around on Capitol Hill. And I think that the best things that, that we can do as a cooperative community um, is, uh, again, um, educate ourselves on the particular matters on the Hill and what, what's coming and what's going and advocate. I mean, obviously, different geographical areas across the country are going to be in in, in tornado alleys and, and, and here in North Carolina where I live, we get a lot of hurricanes and all that kind of stuff. And so all said, somebody on the federal level needs to be looking at all of the potential things from a standpoint of if we're in the middle of a, of a pandemic, there may be a national disaster. If we're in the middle of a pandemic, there may be you know, something else that occurs, um, you know, homeland security and some other things. And so all that said, I just feel like it's important for us to begin to advocate on behalf of a lot of the, the, the things that the the caller talked about, because listen, the, the SBA process, 20 billion plus uh, dollars in loans last year. And I'm sure that if you would have asked them on January one, that they'd be doing 500 billion in additional loan guarantees, they would have looked at you like you were crazy. But again, we're in unprecedented times. And I think that um, my mom always told me that a closed mouth doesn't get fed. And so I think that we've got to, as a community, advocate on behalf of, of programs, federal programs that we feel would be beneficial to the cooperatives um, and, 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 and the one that was just mentioned, the one that he just mentioned. And so just my two cents, I'm not speaking on, on behalf of the SBA um, you know, uh, no one can predict what's going to happen next. And anybody who tells you they are, uh, it's a fantasy. And so I just think we have to be nimble. We have to be proactive instead of being reactive moving forward because we're not going to get um, uh, my boss, Chuck Snyder, always tells me you don't get what you don't ask for. And so I think we're going to have to figure out a way to collectively come together to advocate on behalf of these programs that we feel would be beneficial to the community. Okay, thank you, thank you Tom, um, Pat Thorne, yeah. the producer of the show, has sent me a, a message that she has sent your question to David Hinkapi from SBA. So we'll try to get okay. you an answer from him. Uh, the other thing that he said uh, on the last show, the show before, was that because this has come up so quickly, all of the rules aren't there and just apply. So I'd say to you, keep on sending the information in. Uh, you have anything to add, Esteban? Um, I don't, other than um, that's that's what we see the purpose of cooperative organizing um, is is always being at the ready with a vision for how we restructure our economy to be one that's more in line with the values of communities and people um, and, and with cooperative values. And so that's the work that we do uh, with our members, certainly with the leadership and our board um, and our advisors and a lot of the cooperative developers that are within our membership. Um, around what it's going to take to make sure that um, people are paid a fair wage, to make sure that pe- that families are taken care of, um, and that uh, any future bills and legislation got, um, can address that. We got to cut you and take our final break, and then we'll be we'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. Welcome. 
Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. Uh, we have um, John Hosclaw on the line with us from National Cooperative Bank, Esteban Kelly from the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops, and Mo Menkelin from the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops. If you have any questions, you can call in at 1-800-450-7876. And Esteban, would you introduce Mo for us? Yeah, well, you actually just said a little bit about um, Mo being one of our staff directors here at the Worker Co-op Federation. She's actually our communications director and um, is the main driver behind a lot of our advocacy and policy work. And everything about that resource page that um, that I was talking about earlier was really collated and put together by Mo. And it's been really helpful, actually, to have our primary policy person also be the main communications and design and uh, web platform person. Um, and I think that between the calls that we've been doing to our members, you know, hundreds of them, um, the information that we're gathering from what they're experiencing, what hurdles they have, and what they're, what kinds of questions they're coming up with, um, those are all things that Mo is, um, is really holding together. So I'd, I'd like for her to, to share a little bit about that perspective of how the ecosystem is adapting and shifting during all of this. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, communication is key right now, right? You know, everything is moving so quickly, as everyone's already said, and it is so important to get the latest information and the most accurate information to the businesses as soon as possible. And I think one one reflection that I have through the last few weeks is seeing um, how we're able to build relationships with providers like through the SBA, the district offices like David doing amazing work to keep us updated. And then we can keep our businesses updated. And I think in that way, the cooperative movement has a real advantage because we are, we're already operating like this. We've been doing this for a really long time and we are acclimated towards um having these kind of like we are the national group and then we work in close um, coordination with our state and regional groups um, and they're making sure that their businesses have work on the ground so we're seeing a really quick turnover so if someone has a question i'm able to ask it to a david hinkabee and then i can take that answer send it to all of our regional groups so not even just the people that had the question but also all the other regional groups and then have it disseminate in a way that is really, really quick, really agile, and and, and also really um, helpful in building the relationships that we really need to think post-COVID, right? You know, I think a lot of what I, I think I'm hearing towards the end of this conversation is about how we really need to be thinking forward into recovery, even if that might be a little way off. It is really important to think about, like, how are we going to rebuild, right? How are we going to rebuild in a way that is just that makes sure that money gets to the right hands and the, the hands that need it the most. So I, I think the coordination efforts that we're able to do through um, efforts that we already have, like our policy and advocacy council, through our um, our racial and economic justice council, like we're able to keep tabs on what are the needs really quickly and have a very quick turnaround back and forth between the people who need help and the people who are able to provide it. So I want to really give a shout out to all of our Federation partners um, that have been able to work very quickly to provide assistance right now. Um, and I think the co-op movement is doing a great job in general about making sure people are supported. Well, we got a whole, you, you talk about a whole system of people helping each other. And that's mm -hmm. what co-ops are all about, building this community, which is one of the reasons I love co-ops. But you brought up a really interesting, which I'd like to spend perhaps the, the rest of the time on this show talking about, and that is 
we've talked about what we're doing in the midst of this COVID. And it's kind of like, what would be the role of co-ops after this is over with? What would this new norm look like? And one of the things that we really need to stress often, often is get out and vote. In November, you've got to get out and vote. Everybody has to get out and vote. And how we can make sure that U.S. Uh, Wisconsin, the, the uh, University of Wisconsin studies said there are like 350 million members of co-ops, and there's only 330 million people in the U.S. And that's because like I got Escobar, and I'm a member of five co-ops, and he's probably a member of three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten co-ops. All of us members of different co-ops. And so that if, if on average people are members of three co-ops, credit union, housing, food co-op, maybe a worker co-op, something they work in, so that three divided by this 350, 360, there's 1.2 million individuals, maybe they're voting members even, that they can get out and vote. We want to get all of these people to get out and vote. Don't want to tell them who to vote for, but we got to get out and vote just like we do in the co-op world. But what do we do besides getting out and vote and getting people out and vote come November for local and national people? What else can we look for on the other side of this pandemic? Well, I think a couple of things. The history of cooperatives in the United States is one where after every crisis or even leading up to any particular crisis, whether it was around rural development, whether it was around uh, building out an electric grid, uh, various housing crises, cooperatives have been part of redefining what what we take as uh, for granted around the, the basic infrastructure for the political, economic environment around us. And we have used those opportunities to take cooperatives to scale, to a much bigger scale. It is not that we've invented new types of new forms of cooperation out of nowhere, out of thin air in the aftermath of the Great Depression or any other moment. These things have been there. So I think what we're seeing for the 21st century, there is, and there's a lot, there's actually a lot of really amazing and smart and inspiring uh, papers out there about this. There are calls for a green stimulus to invest public dollars in housing cooperatives that are um, that are sustainable, that have a low um, carbon footprint, um, but also can be places for people who are displaced by climate change, whether it's the tornado um, and hurricane conversations we were having earlier, some of the rising sea levels, that cooperatives need to be a solution for that. They need to be a solution for a new, a green energy grid. Um, they need worker ownership and worker cooperatives need to be a solution for an epidemic of youth unemployment that's only going to get way worse than you can imagine. I mean, it's it's about to happen now, and it's about to get way, way worse. Um, and other epidemic people who have been marginalized in our societies. Sorry? Did you say epidemic unemployment? or uh, yeah, epidemic youth, youth unemployment. unemployment specifically, that young people are more vulnerable than any other age group to the waves of unemployment. I mean, that's certainly true globally already, and it's just going to be exacerbated by this crisis. Wow. I haven't even thought about that. I, I, I thought about total unemployment. It rise, rise, rise. That's it the is level rise, in rise, communities rise. of color and among youth. Um, unemployment is. So I think, you know, the, the conversations around green stimulus, and you could look at the hashtag around green stimulus. Some of this is that even Joe Biden's been talking about ways in which uh, a green transformation of the economy needs to be part of how we emerge from this, that, that he has shifted his his whole campaign from being let's return to normal to saying, actually, when we come out of this, we need to come out with a different set of assumptions about what we deserve, what is a fair deal in our society for communities, for workers, in terms of public health, in terms of infrastructure, transportation, housing. 
Um, and we need to rise as a cooperative community to articulate, to help people who already support, they already support our va- values and our vision and our model. So we need to help articulate what that actually looks like, which is why we do the work that we do, educating elected officials, not just on the Hill, but also at the county and state and city council level about what that shift looks like. And then finally, to your point around uh, voter mobilization, we, for the first time, slipped in a question in an, an annual uh, census that we do of um, the worker co-op sector. And we asked people in 2018, I think, um, how many of them who are involved in worker co-ops vote. And it turned out that it was like one of the highest incidences of civic engagement of any other sector in society. It was something like, what was it, like 70 or 80 something percent, Mo? I'm forgetting the number off the top of my head. Um, I'm not surprised, Esteban. Yeah, the majority majority of cooperators absolutely are the ones that are most civically engaged. They're most likely to volunteer, most likely to vote, and and most likely just to be attuned to their civic duties. But way more than the majority. We're talking more than a supermajority, like a three-quarters majority. That's like unheard of to have that level of civic participation in the United States. So I think that that also tells a story, um, including to the Democratic Party or or anyone who's interested in civic engagement and in democracy, um, even at the minimal level of just voting, you know, a couple times a year in a primary and in a general um, election, that tapping into cooperative culture and expanding opportunities for people um, to be involved in cooperatives is one of the ways in which we really amp up civic participation and have people take control of our lives again. I think that this is a wake up call in a lot of different ways. John, you have anything to add to that? Well, just a few things. Just uh, I want to leave everybody with three things. And I've been, you know, really reading a lot of information on the, the impacts of the virus. And I think that the three opportunities that I see my new job at the, at the bank uh, as, as it relates to strategic initiatives is trying to think through from a thought leadership standpoint and community development opportunities for cooperative expansion and community development. So three things that I would say in a post-pandemic world that I think are going to be very important. Number one, you can see the rise of of child care cooperatives because, listen, you can't go back to work over the summer if your child has no child care to go to. So you're going to have to continue to work from home. And so I think you're going to see a rise there. Number two, and I'm seeing this more and more in regards to broadband. Lastly, but not least, obviously, from the health standpoint, there's um, going to be more and more nonprofit health centers, um, you know, cooperative HMOs. And so those are three things that I'm starting to see uh, as trends uh, in a post-pandemic world could be opportunities for uh, cooperatives in the cooperative community to even, um, you know, add even more value. John, you got the last word. We're through. Thank you guys very much. Uh, extremely helpful. I really like this conversation of what happens after the pandemic. We've got a lot of work to do. Let's keep working. Let's keep doing it. And everybody out there, let's live this week and live cooperatively. Thank you. <laughs>